Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. And it's good for us to be together. As we think about the world around us, creation, we recognize as believers, as followers of Christ, as creatures of God, that our creation, through its very existence, is a constant declaration. It is constantly giving glory to its creator and is doing so by a visual revelation. And it's a constant visual revelation and it's a revelation of God's omnipotent power, the omnipotent work of his hands. What is seen, though, is not the full extent of what God has done. Think about that. What is seen is not the full extent of what God has done. That which is visible is not the whole story. It's not the whole story about God. It's not the whole story about his amazing works. Let me illustrate it this way. We think about the passage in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, where it says, by faith we understand. It's talking about God, God's creation, and we believe in that. By faith we know God created everything. But notice, by faith we understand that what is seen, what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What we see was not made of what, by what we see. Even with our most powerful microscopes and with our most powerful telescopes, which unveil and reveal amazing things to us today, things that we could not see before, that we can see now, that because our eyes just don't have the power to see that far or see that small. And so we are able to see things now that are amazing visual testimonies through this instrumentation. But those things that we see through microscopes and telescopes are still made, are still made out of things that are not visible to microscopes and telescopes. God has done amazing things throughout time. And God is still at work in the universe. And through these mighty, mighty works, we come to see that he reveals to us his character. We see his loving kindness. We see his forbearance. We even see his justice in the world through the works that have been revealed to us. So when people of God, when people of God neglect to remember When people of God neglect to tell the stories about the great things that God has done, it breeds irreverence. When we fail to remember and tell the great stories that are revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures, it will breed unbelief. God still works today. He still works in the affairs of his people And God still works in the affairs of mankind, but we cannot always see how God is actually working in the moment. 
we can't always see how he's working in the moment. We will turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And we're going to read several verses in that text this morning. And this is going to be our primary text of, of the day. But this Bible account about the prophet Elisha and the Syrians unveils to us the fact that God works, God does work in unseen ways. So we're going to begin there in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, where it reads, Now the king of Aram, Aram is the ancient name for Syria. So the king of Aram was warring against Israel, ancient Israel. And he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans, that is the Syrians, are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which, which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the word that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go, see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is as Nothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. All around Elisha. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. Speaking of the Syrian army here. So the Lord struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, once again, to the army of the Syrians, the Arameans, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me. And I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. And when they come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And so the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And he answered, You shall not kill them. 
Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the marauding bands of the Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. What we see here as we kind of get into our story is, first of all, the fact that God protected Elisha from the Syrian king. And once again, the Arameans, the Syrians, were warring against Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. At this time, the kingdom is divided between Israel and Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel was an irreverent and a disobedient nation toward God. And that's one reason why you have the work of Elijah and Elisha and others in the land of Israel is because of their disobedience, their unfaithfulness. And we notice back in chapter 5, verse 1 of 2 Kings that through a commander named Naaman, Jehovah gave victory to Aram, to the Syrian nation, over Israel. So that's how kind of this setting begins. God has given you know, you know, the Syrians you know, this control or this power of oppression upon the nation of Israel. But the Syrians' victory over Israel was limited. It wasn't total control of Israel. It was a limited oppression upon the people of God because God was using Elisha here. He was using Elisha to warn Israel's king. So God was letting them come in. He was letting them to have these marauding bands come through and oppress the people, but he wasn't giving them total control. And so at times God would warn the king through Elisha so the king of Israel could take preparations and avoid the confrontation. But what's interesting to me is, I think it was this question, not that I have an answer, is how did the servants of the king of Aram know that the informant was the prophet Elisha? How did they know that? I don't know. Well, they did. Now, the king first thought, you know, like, who's a traitor here? He thought he had an inside informant. And the servant said, well, no, Lord, you know, no, none of us are doing that. But, he says, there's this prophet down in Israel. He is telling the king of Israel what you in secret say. So the king is upset. He's enraged. He's mad. And so the Syrian king decides, well, I'm going to stop this guy. As he finds out where he is, he's down in a place called Dothan, and he sends his army there to capture the prophet, right? Well, so you've got that scene unfolding. His servant wakes up, goes out, and here is the Syrian army circling the city or the town or the village of Dothan, because that's where Elisha is, and that's who he's there to come and get. But what we learn in this account is God, the Almighty One, was and still is greater than any human threat that exists. No matter what the threat is, 
God is bigger than that. He is greater than any kind of threat that could come to us by men. That doesn't mean that men can, you know, may still hurt us. But God is bigger than the threat. God is greater than the threat. And when you think about the scenario here, you, you need to think about what Jesus says you know, to this idea. How you, know, you don't need to be afraid of everyone out there. If God is on your side, if God is on your side, you don't need to be afraid of everything. Will it always go the way you want it to go? Probably not. But you don't have to be afraid of everything if God is on your side. Because God is mightier than any kind of threat that men you know, inflict on other men. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this to his audience, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Now, when we find ourselves in that spot, it may be kind of a little hard for us to not to be a little afraid. But Jesus says, don't be afraid of that situation. We have a tendency, that's our first reaction. But he said, but don't be afraid. That's not really where your fear needs to be placed. He goes on, but I will warn you to whom you, know, you should fear. He says, fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's where our fear needs to be placed. We need to have a healthy fear of God. We need to have the healthy fear of the sovereign of the universe, the one who holds not only our physical life, but our spiritual destiny in his hands. That's who you need to fear. But Elisha tells a servant here, back in Second Kings chapter 6, don't be afraid. And he says, the reason why, because... There's more with us than with them. Now, he's just looked out the, out the window or out the door or whatever, and he saw this great army circling their little town. And so, you know, his reaction is understandable. But Elias says, don't be afraid, because the, the one with us is greater. The ones with us, or the ones for us, are more than them. And so then he asked God, please open the, uh, the servant's eyes, and he does. And what he sees, he sees this mightier force of horses and chariots of fire. That's what he sees. What if his eyes were never opened to see that? Have you thought about that? We're told that the servant's eyes were opened and he got to see it. What if nobody saw that at all? Did it change anything? No. He didn't have to see to make it real. It was real whether he saw it or not. God works in unseen ways. If no one else saw it, and not even that servant, it still was true. Do not be afraid. Those with us are greater than those with them. 
Think about it. In scriptures, are we revealed absolutely everything that God has done? No. We're revealed everything that we need to know so that we can have a saved relationship with our creator. We have the truth that leads to eternity in heaven with God. But the scriptures do not reveal absolutely everything that God has ever done. Neither does the scripture reveal to us everything God is doing presently behind the scenes beyond our capability of vision. God works in unseen ways. And the story of Elisha and his servant and the Syrian army and the, and the mountain that's full of horses and chariots of fire illustrates that fact that God was there protecting Elisha. And the servant didn't have to, make, have to see it to make it true. It was true no matter if nobody saw it. The greater struggles, the greater battles are not the military conflicts around, the, around us or around the world, those things that are unsettling and that concern us. Yes, th- th- you know, those are things that definitely we, we hear and we watch, but that is not the greater battle. Those are not the greater conflict, but rather it is the ongoing war between light and darkness, between, between what is right and in what is wrong, between what is true and what is false, between God and Satan. That is the greater battle. A battle that involves a struggle where there are forces that are unseen. When he talks here in Ephesians chapter 6, how we are up against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We need to realize that there is a lot of unseen things in this world and even beyond our physical realm. We don't see everything, but God does. God sees everything, and God works God is able to do things that you and I cannot see to protect his people. Let's turn our Old Testament back a bit. Go back to the book of Numbers. We're just going to glance very quickly. In Numbers chapter 22, where God earlier in history protected the nation of Israel from being cursed. You know, this is near the end of the wilderness wandering period and where there is a king of Moab that is afraid of Israel. He talks in verse 21 of chapter 22. He says, number 21, the sun's journey camped in the plains of Moab, you know, beyond the Jordan, opposite Jericho, kind of Israel. You got the Jordan River there. Jericho's on one side, Moab is on the other side, and that's where Israel's camped. He's camped in the plains of Moab, and he said, verse, verse 2, the Balak, you know, the son of Zippor, he's the king, saw this. Verse 3, so Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous 
And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. The king and the people of Moab were afraid. And so in the story of Numbers 22, the king tries to hire a man by the name of Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel. And so he was known as a prophet. And he recognizes that as a prophet that, you know, whom he blessed were blessed and whom he cursed, he, they were cursed. And so he tries, he tries to hire them. But God forbade, verse 12, God said to Balaam, the prophet, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Well, King of Moab is not going to give up that easily. And so he tries to keep trying to sway him bribe him to do what he wants him to do. So eventually, you know, Balaam goes. He starts his journey on to, to see the king of Moab. And God is angry with him about this. And so an angel is sent in verse 23. You know, an angel is sent to stand in that path. And you, you know, for many of you as students, you know, you know, as, you know the donkey can see him, but, but uh, Balaam can't see the angel. And so the, the donkey's trying to avoid you know, this angel who has, a, has a, a drawn sword on them. But Balaam doesn't know what's going on. He's getting angry, upset with, with the donkey because he's not going where he wants him to go. And you could, you know, you can probably relate that if you've been worked with animals, and uh, you, whether you're riding a donkey or a horse, or whatever. And sometimes those animals have a mind of their own, and you've got to have enough will to be able to still direct that animal in the path that you wish to go. Well, anyway, the angel, you know, appears to block the path to Balaam and this donkey. And at first, the angel is not seen by Balaam. If the angel had not revealed himself eventually to Balaam, would Balaam have seen it? Balaam seeing the angel didn't make him real. You know, you know this is kind of following up on all the lessons that you know, Leland presented, just kind of giving us a, a, a greater in-depth examination. You know, seeing it doesn't make it real. Seeing it doesn't make it true. The angel was there even when Balaam didn't see it. You know, so even if you hadn't seen the angel, now the chance was, you know, you know, you know the point is he may not have survived. But the point is, Balaam would not have seen the work at hand if the angel didn't reveal himself. But he was there. He was there when he was unseen. He was there when he was seen. He was real. And then you think about as the story unfolds, God puts his word in the mouth of Balaam the prophet so that he blesses Israel. God makes sure that Balaam, even though he's being trying to influence and sway to curse Israel by the king of Moab, God puts his word in the mouth of Balaam so that he blesses. And so each attempt of King Balak to influence Balaam to curse always ended with a blessing, a blessing of Israel. God is protecting Israel here. God is protecting Israel here. And Israel doesn't know it. 
Israel's not seeing this, these things unfold. Now Moses is revealed the account and he writes it in the book of Numbers. He tells the story. He is the writer of the history of this journey. But in the moment, in the moment, Moses wasn't there. Israel's not there. And you think of the imagery, for example, in verse 13, when, when you know, the king takes uh, uh, Balaam up on the mount in chapter 23, he says, verse 13, come with me to another place where you may see them. He wants to see this multitude, these massive Israelites in his plains. And he says, I want you to see this. And although you will only see the extreme end of them, he's saying, you won't even see them all. There are so many down there. And he said, basically, he said, this is why I want you to curse them. You know, these are a threat to me. These are, these are a danger to me. So verse 14, so he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Mount Pisgah. And there, of course, they, they offered sacrifices. And once again, God put the word in Balaam's mouth and he blessed Israel. When this was going on, Israel does not know that a prophet named Balaam and a king named Balak is on the top of the mountain looking down at them yeah, trying to find, yeah, and the king is trying to find a way that they are cursed. And God, each time, is turning the attempt into a blessing. Can't help but think of the words of Paul's, you know, in Paul's letter of Ephesians chapter 3, when, when it says, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Think about it. God is able to do, and God does. God does. He works. And he's able to do far more, abundantly beyond all, all that we ask or think. And I would say in unseen ways, beyond our knowledge, beyond our imagination. Let me illustrate very quickly with this point. In Romans chapter 1, verse 13, Paul, in his introduction to, the, to the, the, this letter, this epistle to the Christians in Rome, speaks of how he had long desired to come to Rome, but he has been prevented. You know, I have been trying to get to Rome to see you and to, to meet you and to encourage you, but I have, prevented to, I have been prevented in coming so far. Now think about that. Was that chance or was that God purposed? Paul being prevented in going to Rome at the time that he's writing to the saints at Rome. Now Paul eventually goes to Rome, but that's later on. So when he says, I have been prevented up to this point, I've been prevented even though I have really been working to try to get, get, get over to see you guys. But I, is that chance or is that God-purposed? That's, that's just for you to think on. I don't know the answer. I have a leaning. You know, I have my opinion on that. But the point is, here is an obstacle in Paul's work. Is it chance or is it God-purposed? Obstacles to your plans 
obstacles to your plans, whatever they may be, whatever kind of obstacle they may be, those obstacles may just, they may just be God's way of taking care of you. We don't always know definitively, do we? In the moment, we don't know. God hasn't told me directly. God hasn't told me specifically this or that. But it may just be when I go back and I remember the stories and tell the stories of God's great work in the affairs of his people, in the affairs of mankind, it may just be those obstacles in our plans is God's way of taking care of us and preparing us for something even better. Or maybe preparing us for something even greater that you can do. Go back to 2 Kings again. 2 Kings Let's glance there in the context of chapter 5 and start with this question. How did God convert? How did God convert the commander of the Syrian army into a God-believer and a God-fearer? Chapter 5 precedes chapter 6. That's obvious. Chapter 6 of the story about the this, this, this Syrian king, he's mad at Elisha because he's interfering with, with his efforts to you know, oppress Israel, and, and so he's determined to capture Elisha, and God protects Elisha. Chapter 5 is before all of those events occurred. How, what the time frame between, we don't know. But in chapter 5, you've got the commander of the Syrian army named Naaman. And as we're told in the very first verse, God gave Syria, God gave Aram victory over Israel. This is God's hand is involved in this. God was using the Syrians as a means of discipline and chastisement for their irreverence and their disobedience. God was using them for his purpose. And the commander was Naaman, who was a leper. And in the process of all of this, in the process of this, there is a little girl a little Israelite girl is captured. We have no idea how old this girl is, but she's little. And so you can imagine whatever you want. She's a little girl, and she's captured. Captured by the Syrians. Were her parents killed? We don't know. Was she just taken you know, from, the, from the, the household? We don't know. But we do know that she was captured as a result of these marauding raids that were coming down into Israel. And, she, and this little girl becomes Naaman's wife's servant. And that girl tells about a prophet back in Samaria, back in Israel. Samaria is the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. He tells them, hey, there is a prophet down in Israel who can heal my master. Here is a captive girl from Israel who says, I wish my master. I want my master. I want the one in whom I'm enslaved to, to get well. 
And so, eventually, Naaman goes to Israel with a king's letter, and there are some events that unfold there. And he finally gets to the house of Elisha, and, and Elisha sends a message out the door and says, okay, you know, what you need to do, you need to go and, and to the Jordan River and dip yourself in that river, and you will be healed. You will be cleansed of your leprosy. Now, we all know that taking a bath does not get rid of leprosy. Going swimming in a river will not get rid of leprosy. But Elisha, the man of God, the prophet of God, tells Naaman, the Syrian captain, if if you want to be healed, this is what you need to do. After some reluctance, he dipped seven times in the Jordan River. And what happened? He was healed. His skin was as clean as an infant child, a newborn baby. That is perfect skin. I want you to notice then the reaction of Naaman. When you look there down in verse 15, when he returned to the man of God with all his company, and came and stood before him, he said, behold, now... I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take him present from your servant, your servant now. Elisha, Elisha declines, but notice then verse 17, Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules, a load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. Here is a man who is converted to become a believer in the one true living God. And he said, that's who I'm going to worship. But back home, his country is filled with idolatry. Did God know, did God know that Naaman had a good heart? A kind of heart that could and would be converted. Did God know that? I believe he did. God knows the hearts of all men, good and bad hearts. What I want to suggest to you is this, is that chance encounters, chance encounters may not always be simply chance encounters. Happenstance may not always be simply happenstance. Is there such a thing as chance? Yes. Is there such a thing as happenstance? It it just happened, and there's no great ramifications around that? Yeah, that can happen. But in all cases, that's not the case. And this story about name and illustrates that. And that's why when there are things that occur along our life's path, look for opportunities of good. In the unfortunate events that may occur in your life, my life, we need to be looking for opportunities of good. The capture 
of an Israelite girl was the messenger from God to send Naaman to the man of God who would convert him to God. People who cross your path may just be God-sent people. They may be just God-sent. Do we know definitely every time? No, I don't know. But they may be God-sent. And they may be God-sent for the sake for you to help them. Or they may be sent for the sake of they are to help you. We don't always know, do we? But we need to remember the stories of God. And how he works in unseen ways. Amazing ways. That reveals and unfolds his plan and brings the right people to the right people. Let's go back to chapter 6 and end with this point. And that is, do not mistreat the enemy whom God places in your care. Now, that army came and surrounded the city and came, you know, there to get to capture Elisha. And God took care of that. God protected him. And so, in answer to Elisha's prayer, God struck the enemy army with blindness. And I have no, I don't know how many uh, were in the army of the Assyrians. I don't know how many that, that was, but God did answer Elisha's prayer once again, you think about the example of James 5, Elijah's praying. Here's another example of Elisha's praying. How fervent prayer of a righteous man finds answers. And so God strikes the army, and Elisha now leads all of these blind men. <laughs> you know, they lead these blind men from Dothan, to the capital of Israel, Samaria, and basically hands them up. They're blind now. So can you picture that? You know, God's hand had to you know, How many did Elisha, did Elisha like, hey, get the village together? Hey, we got to get these, this army back to Samaria. I don't know. But this army of blind men with chariots is led into the center of the capital of Samaria. And I'm assuming at this point, they are somewhat disarmed. <laughs> and they're handed over to the king of Israel. And when the king of Israel says, oh, you know, Elisha, my, my father, my father, hey, you know, am I supposed to kill him now? You know, that's what the king wants. The king wants to kill this oppressive enemy. But what does Elisha tell him? He says, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have t that you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and then go to their master. And that's exactly what happens. Is that this great feast is, is presented to them. You know, once they're fed, they're sent home and then the Arameans, from this point on, stop marauding, stop raiding the land of Israel. 
These were enemies of Israel. Handed over into, into the, here, here's your enemy in the palms of your hands, right here. And they said, don't mistreat them. Don't mistreat that enemy that is in your hands. Jesus says a lot to us also about this idea of the enemy that may be in our hands. You go to Matthew chapter five, chapter five in verse 44, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then in chapter 7, he says, in everything, therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And that includes your enemy. Treat your enemy the way you would want your enemy to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. And then in Romans chapter 12 then says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not mistreat your enemy whom God places in your care. And how did that happen? By the unseen work of God. God's hand was in in this story all along the way. He was guiding. He was protecting. He had a plan. If you think about that, if, if we're to treat our enemies this way, how much more we should treat our brethren this way with whom we may not get along so well? If this is the way we're to treat our enemy, what about our brethren that we have a hard time with? The same. Love them, pray for them, feed them, treat them the way you want them to treat you. The recorded record of God's works in the scriptures are many. And they're there for a purpose. You know, and each one, unique and different and amazing, each one designed to teach us and draw us closer to God, closer to our creator. Why is that? Because God is alive. God is real. God is active. God is not sleeping Yes, can we see evidence around us of the handiwork of God? Yes, we can see that. But also consider the innumerable ways, the innumerable unseen ways God may still be working in your life in accord with his will and his purpose. God loves you. God desires you your salvation and my salvation. How do we know that? Because of the story of Jesus. And we are challenged to walk by faith. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. A faith that is rooted on the revelation of God's word, telling us about him and telling about how he can save us. We walk by faith. We can't see God, but we see the evidence of God. 
We can't see Jesus, but we see the evidence of Jesus. And the greatest thing that God has done, that you and I have never seen, but some did, is the gift of salvation that came to us through His Son dying on a cross. That's the greatest story ever told. And the greatest story that will ever be told is Jesus dying on a cross to save His enemies from their sins. In Mark 16, 16, He says, Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Have you done that? Have you rendered obedience to the Word of God and to Christ? If not, we encourage you to do so this morning. We invite you. Please come forward. Make your wishes known. Always stand to sing the psalm that's been selected.